someone who is progressive and is aligning with an immigrant, for example, an undocumented immigrant, they will have made a lot of assumptions that, oh, you want Hillary Clinton and you'll be happy with her when that's just not true. In fact, I'm, I'm Latino. Most of the people I know are Latino. They are not at all happy with Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton. I found this conversation incredibly interesting. At first, it might kind of seem like a standard nonprofit voter advocacy conversation, but pretty soon it gets into some really fascinating territory. A little bit about Brett's organization, it's called Vote Allies, and they put together eligible and ineligible voters. So there's different kinds of ineligible voters, certain felonies, if you're a legal resident but not a citizen, and there are other things as well. But anyways, these people willingly get together and they discuss politics and worldview with the explicit aim of sharing their vote. But as you'll see, this purposeful blending of worlds has other consequences. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I loved it. Okay, I've got Brett Shears with me here from VoteAllies.org. This might be a dumb question, but let's go more meta. Why is it important that people vote? Why is it important that they're civically engaged in the first place, in your opinion? When we feel we have no influence, we're actually much more likely to do things like act out, to be lethargic and apathetic, to uh, not pursue the things that we want to pursue, to let our communities degrade, all of that. Once you feel you have a little bit of control and power over the system, you're much more likely to, to go after, seek the results you want, and then ideally achieve the results you want. Yeah, you could imagine like teenagers, well, maybe not teenagers, they're too young, but you could imagine like kids in their 20s. And are they going to deface the local skate park with graffiti or whatever? Well, if they were part of a group that got the bill through the city Absolutely. council to build that skate park, Absolutely. they are definitely less likely to deface it. And in fact, if they hear someone talking about how they're planning on defacing it, they might step in, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's a, a micro, microcosm of what you're talking about. No, no. I mean, I mean that's a perfect example to illustrate because what you're talking about is stakeholdership. When people have a stake in, in what's going on, and this, in the, again, back to the neighborhood council system, this was the great dichotomy. When people think of community organizations like the neighborhood council system, they almost exclusively think of land-owning people. Hmm. And uh, that's largely true because those people have a huge stake. They have a financial stake in the quality right. of their neighborhood. So they have more incentive, really, at this point to participate. But it is the other groups who have, of course, a very large stake. They may be more transient because they're not you know, land-holding and, and sitting on a property, but at the same time, it's up to us to say the quality of our life here in this neighborhood or whatever level of community you want to define should be good. It should reflect our values. And that's kind of what democracy as a whole, I think, is set up to do is to reflect the values of the people who are affected by the government. You know what I mean? So a big part of what Vote Allies does, too, it tries to get the voice of the people who are affected by policies. This particular election, immigration you're talking about non-citizens. Those people are directly affected by presidential politics, federal politics, and then people who are formerly incarcerated. You're talking about a huge group of people who are going to be affected by criminal justice reforms or lack of reforms. And to not have their voice in 
the democratic process is a huge loss to us all because you're talking about this group of people who have firsthand knowledge of, of how these policies play out. Okay, so uh, the counter-argument that first comes into my head that I could imagine someone making is if you've been incarcerated on certain kinds of charges and convicted of them, haven't you, haven't you lost your right to have a part in this conversation? Isn't it up to the rest of us who have not done that to make choices and that's just the way the cookie crumbles? What do you say to that? Yeah, I think there there's two really important ways to look at it. The first one is by asking the question, you've now initiated the conversation. And I think that that's a good one to have, meaning felonies or what kinds of crimes in general should prohibit you from voting. So while we know pretty clearly, I think this is a pretty universally applied one. If someone was involved with vote tampering or something like that, which is a very serious offense, um, I think that should disqualify them from participating in the democratic process because they've already shown explicitly that they cannot um, abide by the rules in that discrete process. But when it comes to something else like robbery, this is a a serious offense, no doubt. Um, But the spectrum of actions and activities that people get prosecuted for, for robbery, whether it's armed robbery or, you know, not unarmed robbery, things like that, they all count the same. And in fact, drug charges are the one where people most talk about. So for felony drug charges, it doesn't really matter how little you did, how little, you know, little in terms of drugs and little impact you had on your neighbors. You get a felony, you're classified the same as the guy who was a drug kingpin and you lose your say. And the process by which you restore your, what we feel are inherent democratic rights is as onerous and really as unlikely in a lot of states. And that's the conversation right there, right? So you're like, on this spectrum, who are the people we should be? Maybe there are people we should directly exclude. You know, if we're talking about murders and rapists and people for other capital offenses, I can understand that that's a perfectly reasonable position. And not only politically, just meaning morally, I can understand that. But in terms of the less serious offenses, you're talking about millions of people who are affected by that, the large percentage of people. Yeah, that's really interesting. I don't think that most of us are aware of the broad range of crimes that are considered felonies and that then render someone ineligible to vote. In in a state like Florida, where they have as you know, they have as strict crime laws with regards to many things as anyone, but their disenfranchisement laws are by far the most strict. So it's it's one of the largest states, I think the fourth largest state we have, you know, almost 20 million people or whatever it is. 1.6 million people in the latest estimates are felony disenfranchised. So that number is not at all commensurate with the people who have committed what we would call serious crimes. And it's funny because in other states, they define serious crimes with a very specific term called a crime, you know, of moral turpitude. Yeah. It actually casts a moral judgment on the person based on the crime, but the classification itself has systemic problems and it targets certain populations and it's the exact same in Florida as it is in Alabama and in large part even a progressive state like California. The people who are going to be disenfranchised are of a specific group and I'm and I'm referring specifically to minority groups, which are charged disproportionately for crimes that we have chosen to prosecute perpetrated largely by minorities. You know, you've heard of the crack versus powder cocaine, you know, kind of spectrum. Yeah, I was going to ask you for an example. That might be a perfect one. So uh, there's different sentences handed down for crack cocaine versus good cocaine. 
Right, exactly. So this this supposedly higher quality or more expensive, for sure, cocaine. And the, the both things might get you a felony in theory, but the way it's actually prosecuted, the way it plays out, it does not work out that way. Race is the biggest factor, I would say, but economic class is also a, a very important factor. And the reason why that is as important as race is because historically, from the founding of the country, the lower economic classes have been seen as dispensable in terms of democratic input. The original voting block, the legal voting block, was white male property owners. So you had to be a property owner. That is kind of built into the ethic. A lot of people still feel that our democracy should not be diluted by people who don't have as big a stake. The only problem is they define stake very narrowly by wealth. And we are really doing ourselves a disservice by doing that because all of the policies that we create administered by the government are not really meant, you know, the welfare state are not meant to be administered and run and solely informed by the wealthy when you're talking about helping out people who don't have the resources. Let's zoom out even more. Let's say that I am someone who in this very annoying and disgusting election cycle, I think we would all agree. Yes, I would. Let's say I'm someone who says, who cares, man? Like, what's the difference here? I don't Neither of these candidates is going to be a good president. I'm not even going to vote. Why should that person, regardless of who they want to vote for for president or if they want to vote third party or if they want to refrain from president, why should that person care? Why does it matter that they vote in general? So I, I would say that my privilege, voting is many things. It's a right. That's how we often view it. It's a privilege because not everyone has that right. And it's a responsibility, meaning it takes some work to actually do it. It takes some work. Um, I can understand people not wanting to do the work, the third part. Yeah. You know what I mean? They have it as a right, and it's a privilege that they take for granted, but they don't want to do the work. There are people in this country, felony disenfranchised, non-citizen, who are dramatically affected by these decisions and by these policies. And I am one of those people who says, I don't want, this election does not appeal to me in terms of presidential elections specifically. My feelings about all of the candidates are not strong enough for me to say, I want to really make a stand. And I don't, I, I can say that forthrightly, I don't. But I have access to so many different privileges and rights and things that it's easy for me to take for granted. But when I hear the perspective of someone who's felony disenfranchised, an immigrant, all of a sudden, all of the stakes, all of my indifference to those choices, it changes the calculus completely because they're saying, but don't you know how I might be affected by this? And it and it comes in surprising ways. You, you know, a, a lot of the populations I'm talking about, you would just assume Democratic or assume Hillary Clinton in, in the specific. But hearing their perspective about how they would be affected changes my calculus. It changes my understanding of what's at stake. And the person that you described, maybe they're apathetic, but at least they've kind of thought about this system. They thought about the choices that they have at hand, and they may be indifferent to the choices. That's the difference between apathy and indifference. Apathy is I kind of never, I checked out, I've stopped listening, I don't care. Indifference is these people all seem equally bad to me. I don't want to be the one to make the choice. So the person who's indifferent can connect with someone who has stronger feelings and says, listen, I want you to vote this way because 
this is important to me for reasons X, Y, and Z. Give me a couple examples to the person who's indifferent, who says, I, there's no way to know if these two candidates or these two policies or these two senators, there's no way to know if this is going to affect anybody. Give me some examples of the way that that is maybe coming from a place of privilege and that there are real people for whom there will be a very significant change in their life depending on president or immigration policy or incarceration policy or what have you. I would say that coming from a place of privilege is a way I would describe it. Absent this project, I would not vote for one of the two major party candidates. That's the reality. Just That's just you as a citizen voter. That's me as a citizen. That's exactly right. And I've had leveled at me the criticism, well, you must be coming from a place of privilege to not understand that there will be a dramatic consequence. And that, of course, in some sense is right. But also my third choice, you know, if I were to vote for third party, not understanding the value of that is also coming from a place of privilege because it's differing degrees for an undocumented person who whose family may very well de- be deported based on the choice between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. That is a place of privilege, me not recognizing their needs. But for someone who is going to be, you know, blown up by a hawkish, you know, president in the form of either the two major party candidates, not understanding their plight is also a place of privilege. So there are varying degrees, some are more realistic than others, but it's important to understand the perspective of all of these people who are affected. Again, this is goes back to the concept of stakeholdership. How will you be affected by this decision? And the answer for me is I have a really good life. And whether Trump gets elected or Hillary gets elected or a third party gets elected, my life is going to be really good either way. I'm happy to say that I was born into a situation where things are pretty good for me. But I want more people to understand that there are perspectives outside not only their own, but even their narrow scope of what they view as privilege versus not, because that's what gets lost in a lot of this. And for people making that decision and trying to jump from that point of apathy to action, that's what I hope they realize. Because, you know, it's not just president that's at stake. It's all these other things. And that is the big jump from apathy to action. Because, yeah, okay, I'll vote for president. But now I have to see how is the person, you know, the local person in my community affected by these issues. It just gives us a wider scope of politics, elections, and governance, and all these things that affect the people that are part of our community, whatever level we define that. So tell us a basic rundown. What happens if someone signs up for Vote Allies? So it's a pretty straightforward sign-up process. Um, the first questions you know asked are who you are and what your status is. You know, Are you enfranchised versus disenfranchised? And uh, that will set you on a path of really, you know, whether you need a connection or not. Some people are signing up with connections already. They already have their own partner and they're just trying to kind of lock it in, validate it, and be like, hey, yeah, we support this, we're participating. But what the platform does, what the ultimate you know, source of its value is, this kind of activity has been happening since the beginning of the Republic. People have been influencing and informing each other. Yeah, that's interesting to me. Yeah, well, I'll just real, real quick tangent. You know, Women obviously didn't always have the right to vote, yet husbands and wives would confer with each other all the time, you know, that this was, it was very reasonable to say that this was a household vote. And the husband would ultimately vote on behalf of the household after some conference or whatever it was that in theory, anyway, yeah, (laughs) exactly. I know this was a minority of people. This was this was a small minority of husbands and wives who did this. There's no way to 
overstate that. Sure. But the fact is, it was a reasonable thing to do, and no one would have begr- you know been begrudged you for doing it. They'd have been like, yes, of course, your wife should inform you, and you should talk with her, and that's a reasonable thing to do. And of course, that changed in the 1920s when women got the right to vote. But this is happening to this day. So you have mixed status families. The husband and wife in that example is mixed status. One can vote, one cannot. Yeah, we have a couple that are friends of ours, and the husband is from New Zealand, and the wife is American. And the husband has a lot stronger political views on certain issues than his wife. And he's like, man, I really wish I could vote, but I, I can't. All I can do is <laughs> speak with my wife, and then it's ultimately her decision. So it, it, it really does happen quite a bit. Yeah, you hope to influence people. I mean, it's happening by the millions in every election. It's, it's, a, it's a very common thing. But that's with people you know. And it's a reasonable thing to ask your wife how you feel if one of you is disenfranchised or not. This is for people if you don't know someone, because you can't just walk up to someone on the street and be like, hey, are you undocumented immigrant? Or hey, do you have a felony conviction in your past? Yeah, we don't recommend people do that. <laughs> exactly. That's a, that, that was the first thought of the platform itself. Like what kind of service does it actually provide? Well, it, it, it creates, it eliminates this awkwardness of you actually having to go up and ask someone to do that. That's just an unreasonable thing to do. And it's equally unreasonable for you to be undocumented or you to have a felony be like, hey, can you vote on my behalf, stranger? That's not really something that people should be doing. But this, when you sign up, the expectation is already there. I know these people can't vote for reasons X, Y, and Z. We don't get into the details. If you have a felony conviction, we don't ask you what it was for. We don't ask you um, any details about that, the level of severity of it. And if you're a non-citizen, we don't ask you which kind. We don't ask you if you're undocumented versus legal permanent resident versus student visa. It's not really important because it's mostly symbolic. If you take If you have taken the initiative to be like, I want to take on this responsibility of learning and exercising a preference, then that is enough for us. Okay, so that's that's really interesting. So what you're not saying is here is our platform on which people should be allowed to vote. You're just saying, look, if you can't vote, you can't vote. And we're not going to be able to change that ourselves. However, if you want to be a part of the political process then we want you to be able to be a part of it through influencing people who can vote. And that's that's an interesting distinction. Yeah, I would say that that is absolutely correct. That is the core service we provide. Me, as a political person, as an advocate, I do advocate for the larger policies. There's no doubt. I'm out there saying, sure. hey, we should change the policy to enfranchise more people. Um, in San Francisco, for example, they have a ballot initiative this November. It's limited just to the San Francisco school board that would enfranchise non-citizens to be able to vote for their school board representatives. Hmm. And the reason why they feel that that's important is because a large percentage of their constituents, um, of the students who attend schools at SFUSD, are children of non-citizen parents. So it's irresponsible not to want to engage them in the process. And how many times do we tell parents, you should be involved in your child's education? Is that not a good thing? Do we not want them to be involved in some way? Then why do we have these explicit barriers telling them, do not participate? Of course, some still overcome those barriers. And despite being non-citizens, they are actively involved. But you know, there's this wide spectrum of people who, who are precluded from participating, even though we really do want their perspective. In Los Angeles, for example, it's 58% of school-age children have at least one parent who is a non-citizen. That's staggering. You know what I mean? To not have that perspective 
for electing the representatives, that is a that, that is a tragedy. That is what I call a crisis of representation. You are not actually getting the perspective of parents who care about their children's education really involved. Now, what percentage of them will vote once they are enfranchised? Well, I mean, of course, there's going to be a, there's going to be a, a big learning curve. There might be big turnout the first time after, but it's going to have the same problems as every eligible population of voters. Um, but confusion, I would say, is one reason why suppression or lower turnout might happen against traditionally disenfranchised population. And that's kind of one of my main talking points with regards to any disenfranchisement is that confusion is one of the most potent sources of voter suppression. And you see it with felony disenfranchisement above everything. So the number is about 6.1 million people nationwide are felony disenfranchised. But if I had to estimate, I would say the number is probably four or five times that in terms of people who think they can't vote. Oh, wow. Because how widespread this uh, notion of felony disenfranchisement is. Because a large percentage of our population has had a felony at some point in their life, but a lot of them don't know that that does not preclude them from voting. In a state like Florida, yes, it does. But a state like California, where you have over a million people, I'm sure, who have had a felony at some point in their lives, that's going to affect the way they view elections and whether or not they can participate. Yeah, I will admit I was under the impression that felony voter laws were federal, but they're actually state laws, you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so now my seeing the other side conservative radar is starting to ping. And I can imagine someone who wouldn't have to be too cynical thinking, okay, Brett, look, I get it. There's some nobility here, but you're being used by the left because once you start getting the type of people who can't vote to be able to vote, they're totally going to be Democrats. That's going to be used. Even if your intentions are pure, you're going to be used as a tool by the system. But I'm wondering if you've had experiences of progressive eligible voters coming into the system, meeting with uneligible conservative people who can't vote. Is there cross-pollination both ways from left to right, broadly speaking? So here's here's two things that should put the Republican or conservative-leaning perspective at ease and, and why I actually haven't faced any real – like people have a moral objection to the idea of the policy, meaning should immigrants be allowed to vote in general, absent this project? Should people with felony convictions be allowed to vote in general? So there are moral objections or whatever objections to that. Sure. But in terms of the electoral impact of a project like this, whether it exists in its very small form now or if it were to expand, the reason why there shouldn't be that much concern is because there is going to be a lot of self-selection that takes place to begin with, meaning the people who sign up are going to be more liberal-leaning sharing their votes because they believe in these causes. And the people, that, that's the eligible side, and the people who sign up on the ineligible side are going to be a bigger mix, meaning they're going to be how somewhat, they will also be liberal, no doubt, but somewhat less so because there is just more diversity in the ineligible voting population. That's really all there is to it. Right, because the conditions that make one ineligible are more broad across a population than the conditions that make one liberal. The existing circumstances of anyone who signs up for this project on the eligible side are much more likely to be liberal than they are conserv- than that pool of population is to be liberal. Meaning, if you were to cancel all, out all the votes, there's no doubt that the people who sign up are fully on the liberal side of the spectrum. Where on the other side, 
it's just going to be more representative of the population of people who are disenfranchised, yeah. whether that's heavily, heavily Latino or heavily black and Latino on the formerly incarcerated side. There's no, there's no doubt. But you've also got Cuban Americans who historically vote very strongly Republican, for instance. Right. So uh, if they are on the immigrant disenfranchised side, they might be slightly more conservative. But, you know, the way the sign up works, we actually ask people what their political party affiliation is if they are enfranchised and what their political views are for both people who are enfranchised and disenfranchised. And that's just a general question of liberal versus kind of conservative um, or other something to that effect. And there is a lot of matching that's going on. So we want people to be able to hear the different or quote, opposite perspective. But at the same time, we recognize there's some trepidation involved when people say, okay, I don't want to do something that will be morally objectionable. Give us some examples of perspectives that a non-eligible voter might have that would be worth the rest of us considering and absorbing into our own political thought. One complication with a question like that is just by virtue of being an immigrant, for example, doesn't mean your top priority is immigration, Right. which is one of the most fascinating things about this. It, and, and the felony disenfranchisement side, I use the immigration example, but I should use the felony disenfranchisement side. Just because you have a felony or because you were recently incarcerated doesn't mean that that's something you're you're thinking about. Right. Prison reform might not be your number one issue just because you've been in prison. No way. Yeah. You'll probably be out saying, hey, I want the economy to do, be doing better so I can get a job, right? Uh, which thing is going to help me get a job? And the reason why I, I just bring that up and it's important is not because they don't care about that. They have knowledge of it. They've internalized all their experiences. It's just that their preferences are informed by this other and possibly more immediate concern. And the same thing could be said of immigrants, especially depending on where you fall on the spectrum of, you know, um, whether you're documented versus undocumented kind of thing. But even for people who are undocumented, they do have an immediate concern. I don't want to be, de- I want to be here. I want a path to citizenship. I don't want to be deported or I want a path to at least legal uh, right. residency, right? And for those people, understanding their preferences is mostly the same thing that the felony disenfranchised is understanding what their most pressing concern is and why. So why is it? And how? why does this particular candidate or ballot initiative reflect those preferences because there are some people maybe the cuban example that you're using who are going to be for trump yet they are on the immigration spectrum somewhere whether they're legal or undocumented whatever it is and they're going to be for him and then the key question after that is why why are you for him because they're like you know what? i want someone who's gonna be producing more jobs and i think he's gonna be the one to do it and i think i'm i'm not right. i don't have to worry about being deported or my family or i don't think he'll actually do the things he's gonna say and it's just important to hear their perspective their concerns because that is the illumination that i'm hoping people come because we come in with so many preconceived notions about what people of a specific demographic want I want to dispel that. I want to say that, hey, don't don't think it's as clear as you think it is because there's a lot going on inside that person's head. The problem, the biggest problem, the whole reason for this project is we just don't know what that is because they have no impetus for getting involved. They're not allowed to vote. Therefore, they don't have this trigger every two or four years that says it's time to think about civic engagement. It's time to get involved. 
Um, whereas the rest of us, it comes very natural. So this is really why I wanted to have you on the podcast, because it isn't that, oh, here are the four or five perspectives that eligible voters don't tend to think about. It's actually interacting with a real person on the margins, which then smashes our categories of, well, everyone is one of two categories, right? That's what it does. You think, oh, here's a complex human being and they have their own views on all of these issues and I wouldn't have been able to anticipate what those views are because they are their own person. And that will help us then not do that for everyone else that we meet and not throw people in boxes, slap labels on them, or for ourselves, assume that we have to have some particular view on every issue, whether we're progressive or conservative or whatever. That is absolutely right. That's fascinating. That's, the, that's, the, that's one of the products of polarization is that you project so many assumptions on people with whom you have either minimal interaction or if you do have interaction it's it's at the most superficial level that does not allow you to delve deeper and then what we find the kind of the result of that is that there's this blunt instrument that we have which is the vote and then ultimately the candidate who's supposed to be some kind of manifestation of all this which i voted for candidate x the implication is that i agree with candidate x but what what i have in this project and with all of the work that i've been doing is yeah, a large percentage of the immigrants are going to come in, they're going to share a vote, and they're going to vote for, let's say, Hillary Clinton, for example. But what you found in your conversation is that they have an innumerable number of reservations about that vote. They are no different wow. than other people who say, yes, I will do it, but this, these are the things I want you to consider. These are the things that I am worried about. And the enfranchisement debate that's going on you know, the devil's advocate side talking about how Republicans would view this is that, yeah, you're right. There's no doubt that some people are going to vote more for one candidate than another, more for one party than another, but you never stop to ask why. And that is one of the products of polarization is that you could easily be meeting the needs of these concerns as a party, as an, as a candidate, whatever it is, but you just took it for granted that they might end up voting this way and you never did anything to address the concerns. So people who are concerned about like, oh, the electoral college is crap and our votes don't really count. This is a way for people to get a more nuanced understanding of an American voter and especially an American voter that they would have no interaction with otherwise, almost definitely. And to start thinking about it, less in terms of, well, the Electoral College is going to determine the president and my state vote doesn't matter because I'm in Washington. It's going to go blue no matter what. This is kind of bringing up like, hey, there are a ton of issues, policy decisions and whatnot that affect people's lives. And people who are ineligible to vote are far more likely to be on a knife's edge around those policies in terms of how it will affect their lives than someone like myself owning my home, white male, living in Seattle. Well, you just hit on something that's incredibly important because we could talk about the drawbacks of the Electoral College versus popular representation and what informal or de facto disenfranchisement looks like for a state like California. Um, You can say, oh, well, we're going to vote for Hillary, so what's the point? That is kind of the whole essence of a project like this is that I've 
all of my studying about voting and politics has helped me come to realize that it's not about the actual vote you're casting and its effect on the electoral outcome. That can't be what it's about because statistically, that is so microscopic and almost as close to 0% in a state like California as is possible that it has to be about something else. Why am I doing this thing if it doesn't actually have an electoral impact? And again, we can talk about the drawbacks of the electoral college, but why am I actually doing this thing? Well, it's because I want to be engaged. I want to take this responsibility seriously. I want to be involved enough to understand what's going on in my community. That privilege, that responsibility is easily transferable to someone who does not have the right to vote. So that is the difference. If the difference is, if it's literally just the vote cast and its electoral impact, then this isn't very interesting. But if it's the process, if it's the understanding, then all of a sudden it has a lot more weight. And that's what I encourage all my friends to do who are really disenchanted by this whole notion of being informally disenfranchised with the electoral college. I'm saying, okay, well, what else are you doing? Like, how else are you being involved? How are you putting the pressure on to whatever capacity, to whatever extent you can, you know, be involved? And it's not just about the vote. So, Brett, I just find this issue so fascinating. It seems like it's it's the razor's edge in the middle of like five different topics. And I know uh, this is not a religious podcast, and I don't know if you're religious at all, but it makes me think of, uh, as a Christian, it makes me think of Jesus who says, you have to lose your life that you might gain it. You know, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it, it won't produce a tree. And there's kind of this weird thing here where you could think of this in those terms. You could think of it like, unless you seed your own preferences and hear someone else's preferences, you can't even really live out and get the kind of life that you want with your preferences. I mean, I think that what Jesus says in those parables is basically a life of pure self-interest is not a good life. The only good life is one in which you're willing to give up your self-interest. And then paradoxically, you will have a much more full life. And this is just making me think of like a political version of that. But then it, it starts political, but it seems like it would never end there with the people who go through this. It must surely lead to insights about the human condition uh, love for one's neighbor. I mean, this is just where my mind is going, and I, I'm not trying to shove this down anyone's throat, but, like, I'm so pumped about it. Like, I'm so pumped to think about this through the lens of the Sermon on the Mount, and I, I think there's probably five other lenses we could we could think about it. It just seems to cut to, like, the core of humans relating to each other, and that's what is getting me so excited. Is that, have you had an experience like that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the way I describe it, you know, I told you voting is many things. Voting is a a right, a privilege, and a responsibility. I'm not religious in the sense that I belong to any church or I belong to any particular re- religion. I'm not atheistic either, but both of my parents are, you know, my mother is from a traditional Catholic family and my dad is, is from a Mormon family, and they both have their own strong faith. Um, but, you know, their religious differences kind of made it hard for their children to have any coherent, you know, kind of, you know, Christian faith or anything like that. So I grew up essentially agnostic, but certainly from their influences, I'm I'm a deeply spiritual person. And one thing my parents imparted to me um, and it's a, what I feel is an important Christian value is, is sharing your blessings. And for me, I'm trying to 
frame voting and the right to vote as a blessing that all of this stuff we're talking about with Black Lives Matter, Colin Kaepernick, and the reason why I bring him up in particular is because people tie the flag and quote respect or disrespect for it to uh, something like military service. And I understand that connection. I get why people make that connection. And the connection that I try to draw to and I don't take for granted is military service to voting and the right to vote. Interesting. And for some people, they view this project as antithetical to that, meaning I'm being willy-nilly with my right to vote. I'm just want to give it to any, you know, Jack or Jane and we'll have no nation whatsoever. But I view it as just the opposite. I think the right to vote is so important and I so honor the people who came before me to fight for that right to vote that I want others to have it. And it is such an important blessing of mine that I want and I have been taught to share my blessings. You know, back to the Black Lives Matter stuff, what people are trying to articulate in this movement, in this moment, is that I have a set of privileges that I recognize as someone who is involved in my community, who has some influence in my community, that if I were to sacrifice or share in this example, my right to vote, I would not be compromised at all. I would still have all the blessings in the world. My life would still be great, but I'm at least helping one other person get their voice heard, get involved in the process. And if I can do that through this, I think it's a great thing. I think it amplifies all of our voices. I think it makes our world better. And like you were saying, it's going to make my world better. So ultimately, it's something that serves me by willing, my willingness to share my blessings. Now, from our conversation the other day when we met, you mentioned to me that your mom is a great example of someone who has rediscovered their agency in the community in which they live. This is my step. Your stepmom. Okay. So can you tell that? Uh, can you tell us about that? She came to this country uh, when she was in her teens. So she was a young, you know, Mexican immigrant just looking, you know, coming by. Her, her family had been coming, I believe, already. And then uh, she wanted to build a life here. She knew she was trying to seek opportunity like anyone else, right? Um, but what that entails is you're struggling to survive. You know, you're doing the most basic things. You're, you're, you're working where you can get work. You're struggling to buy what you need to feed your da- her daughter in this case. But she ended up working for my dad. They uh, got along, they fell in love, and they ended up getting married within you know a few years of her of her moving here. But they have now been married for eighteen years, and she's still not a citizen. She has not naturalized. She's here legally, of course, through marriage, but she's not taken the steps to naturalize, and she has her own reasons for that. But as someone who's not a citizen, she has never been prompted. She's never been triggered by things like elections to say, hmm, let me now think about how this is going to affect my life, or more importantly, I think, for her, the people she knows, her family, her large extended family who now lives here or travels in between Mexico and the U.S., and this is the her first ever opportunity to really think about those issues because she signed up, along with my dad, to express her preferences in voting. Without that trigger, she would have gone on possibly for the rest of her life, or at least until she really started thinking about naturalization, 
you know, what is all this about? What are people thinking? How, how is it going to affect me? It just never would have entered her mind. It would have been very unlikely. We're recording this the Monday after the second presidential debate. And last night, Trump said, you know, Muslims need to speak up when they see bad things. And it makes me think about the skate park example that we were talking about earlier. This is a direct bridge to that fear that I think Trump is kind of trying to stoke. And by the way, it, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the San Bernardino argument he gave that neighbors saw bombs all over the apartment and didn't do anything is totally false. In fact, no one saw any bombs. Two people reported suspicious activity. But even that thing, right, that people are afraid of, of like, well, you know, uh, Muslims will be complicit in acts of terror or perhaps illegal immigrants will be complicit in breaking the laws of the land that their immigrant friends are breaking or what have you, anything like this. One of the answers to that seems to be civic engagement and responsibility, taking a part, being a part of the process and then feeling a part of the process and then having a stake of ownership in not only the process, but the city or the country in which you live. And it seems like this is kind of getting to the heart of all of that. My fiance, her, her uncle and her, her, her aunt are steeply involved with the Muslim community. I would be remiss if I didn't say his name is Salam Al-Mariyadi, and he's the director of the Muslim Public Affairs Council. And they spend a huge percentage of their time talking about this kind of community. Policing is too harsh of a word, but, you know, community yeah input, you know, this community service of saying, bring people in so we can actually have them say if there is a concern of theirs, you know what I mean? Is someone being radicalized? Is someone right. on the fringe? You know, we're talking about the margins, really. These people are marginalized in their own way. They're not just trying to be destructive for their own sake. A lot of the terrorism, which is mostly homegrown in this country, there's not people coming from abroad to commit acts of terrorism. That's just a weird anomaly that people fixate on. It's it's usually people who have been here and they're radicalized, whether they're white, black, Latino, Muslim, whatever, it doesn't really matter, because they have felt this sense of powerlessness. That is such a big part of this. And I don't know the exact reason for that. But what I do believe is that there are ways to empower people. There are ways for people to get their grievances out. There are ways for people to connect with their neighbors who can actually help them. And the more we do that, I think the more we mitigate these concerns. And the idea that we're going to somehow extricate a person without them having any contact or stake in their relationship, really no community identity, is so ridiculous. Because you're not going to be able to target that person when they're no one's heard anything about that person or have heard very little or their community is very isolated. They're small. Yeah. It's just not a realistic thing. It's going to be the most invasive form of policing, which it would be a huge sacrifice in its own right. So the better way to do yeah. it is to bring people out. And that's what, you know, we're talking about terrorism, but that's in terms of just violence and gang violence that the similar tactics are used. Friday night lights is a program that we have in Los Angeles, which its whole purpose is to bring the community out and just have them all in one place. So that way, if you know all the this this kind of niche violence is so much less likely because this is just now the community and you're here. You don't have a reason right. to be isolated and you know quarreling with one or two other people. This is you in the community, and they just do it at parks, and it's you know been wildly successful in so many different ways. Um, that's the kind of thinking that we need to apply to civic engagement more generally. That's more just kind of community event, but 
civic engagement is also another avenue for that. Well, and if you think about the argumentation and taking it to its logical end, let's say you are worried about Muslim Americans. You're, you're an American citizen. You're worried about them. Broadly speaking, you've got a couple routes here. One is you can engage with them and you can invite them to be a part of the community and to become part of the fabric of your country. On the other logical extreme, you can put them in a ghetto. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, and there, I, I'm trying right now to think of a third direction to move with an entire group of people. I can't think of one. It's either, hey, you live here. How can we help your community integrate? Uh, if your community is getting weird looks because of your hijab or if, you know, these are the questions that people are asking you. Let's let's engage those questions. How can we get your voice heard? How can how can we give you a stake in this so that you care? Right. Or it's just marginalize them as much as possible. And, the you know, it starts with, well, they all have to take a test. OK, and then we categorize them. And now, OK, well, these ones are the dangerous ones. And how do we identify that they're dangerous? And at some point you're you're putting them in the ghettos of Germany. At some point, that's that's what it becomes. And I'm, I'm not, of course, accusing any conservative person of wanting to put Muslims in a ghetto. My argument is just that the line of thinking is either toward push them out as much as possible, give them as little engagement as possible, and and police them as strictly as possible to keep everyone else safe of this giant group of millions of people. Or it's, hey, come to the party, come to the table, have a seat. And I can't think of another direction besides those two. Am I missing one? I can't think of anything off the top of my head either. But the, the kind of the binary that you've drawn, these, this bidirectional movement, you know, it really does impose itself on all of these different aspects of community. You're talking about marginalization versus inclusion. And those are the same binaries that we're working with on voting and civic engagement. Do you want to include them? Do you want them to be a part or do you want to continue to marginalize them uh, and, and make it even worse for them? And then ultimately, you know, the parables that you're talking about ultimately worse for us. And I don't, I don't think that when people talk about the ways in which they marginalize people, and I think even they know it, you know, and we're talking about people are tend to be a little more conservative. Um, they don't do it just from a place uh, of hate or targeting. Of course not. Of course, especially not. because it, it's it's so broadly it's so broadly applied sometimes. But one way we can help bridge that gap is as people who are for inclusion, it's worth identifying the cost. Meaning, when you were talking about the incentives, really, that's what we were ultimately talking about to participate. The part the incentives to come and integrate into this community, there are things we have to do, even if it's us having to learn, you know, which seems like a small price to pay, which is a relatively good thing to, to me and hopefully to others. But, you know, it takes a little bit of time investment. Uh, if it's the kind of thing where we have to communicate and spend resources, you know, translating materials, translation is such a huge problem in the, the civic engagement arena, because you're like, well, you know, this population only represents 1% of the pop, this group represents 1% of the population, should we bother translating for them or just keep them on the margins? You know, these are things Mm, that we recognize there are costs, 
but we have to do a better job of articulating the benefits. Don't disregard the costs. We, along with the people who want to marginalize, will be like, yeah, you know, there are costs, but we want you to understand the benefits. There are so many benefits to be derived from doing this. And for them, we have to get them to understand that safety and security and community are part of those benefits. Okay, so let's, we've thrown our brethren on the right under the bus here a little bit and try to do it gently. Let's take our progressive friends. What are ways that someone on the left might hear about, they might hear about this group. They go, someone says, oh, did you hear about Vote Allies? And they go, oh, that's such a great, what a great idea. They're making the world so much more beautiful, but they might go, I don't, I, nothing is required of me. Like I'm progressive. I, I care about the rights of the marginalized and the poor. What might they be missing if they're being overly smug? What are they maybe missing that's going on in these interactions that might be quite a bit more fruitful and vibrant than simply choosing progressive policies or progressive candidates to vote for? Well, we got into it a little. I'll rehash it. But I'll say in terms of the whole model, there's a lot they are missing. So I'll just rehash the one thing we talked about earlier. Someone who is progressive and is aligning with an immigrant, for example, an undocumented immigrant, they will have made a lot of assumptions that, oh, you want Hillary Clinton and you'll be happy with her when that's just not true. In fact, I'm, I'm Latino. Most of the people I know are Latino. They are not at all happy with Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton. They know that they are the lesser of two evils, but that is exactly the type of language they couch it in. So a person who is kind of, you know, I don't want to, again, use the terminology for its own sake, but just the hyperbolic example of a smug liberal who will have voted Democrat in every election, they are not understanding the perspective of someone who has a lot of ambivalence about doing that and a lot of concerns about the power structure. The person who's really marginalized, they, even though they might not articulate it in this way, are concerned with the power structure and the power dynamics, not partisan politics. They want to be a part of the process. When someone's putting on a meeting or someone's convening something, they want to be in there. But who they see in there is mostly powerful elite, white liberal elite. Um, And then it's kind of just throwing them a bone every now and then. So this project is not throwing anyone a bone. It's directly engaging people. And yes, more of the people who are eligible to vote might be white liberal, not elite for, you know, most, <laughs> most definitions of that, but yeah. they, they have the same, you know, affiliation. So there, there, there is potential problems. So that is one thing that you're doing is you're dispelling this kind of comfort with the choices or what is happening in the political sphere. But with the model as a whole, I would say that liberals are missing or people on the left are missing the valid or at least understandable concerns of people on the right. And the one that I talk a lot about, but I don't pay enough uh, lip service to because I, you know, I'm trying to be consistent with the message, but is voter ID. So with voter ID, it will necessarily suppress turnout. I mean, it doesn't do it in every case, but that is kind of, that's what it will do, right? I mean, it's- Give us some cliffs notes on that just in case people aren't caught up on voter ID stuff. It, we kind of went from a point of not needing it at any point because we live in a system where people have varying degrees of access to stuff like that. Um, we had just gotten over poll taxes in the 1960s and people viewed 
having to get an ID, especially if it wasn't provided free of service, as another form of poll tax and exclusion. Um, voter ID ultimately disproportionately affects minorities, youth, elderly, uh, poor. So it just it will disenfranchise those groups necessarily unless you completely bend over backwards to pay all the costs to make sure 100% happens, which is just not politically feasible. So the actual result is voter suppression. That is just a necessary part of it. But the reason why people want voter ID is because they have so much distrust in the system. They believe that right. there is fraud and they believe there is fraud generally, but voter ID only addresses one type of fraud, voter impersonation, meaning are you coming to say you're one person when you're really another? I need to see your ID to prove otherwise. So that is something that happens one in a, you know, a billion kind of thing. It's extremely rare. In Texas, they had three cases over the course of something like 10 years when they did their wow. investigation of voter impersonation. And yet Texas is one of the states that's trying to put forward one of the more strict voter ID laws. And it recently kind of got shot down by the federal courts. But all of these things are working against each other. What's important for liberals to know is that there are real concerns of people on the right that are not just political. So people who are conservative tend to have certain psychological preferences and think for things like loyalty, faith, truth, honesty, integrity, all these things. And of course, they, they span the political spectrum, but those are placed with such high priority for a lot of people who might just have conservative inclinations. And when you just dismiss those and say, no, inclusion is the ethic that should trump all of that. Yeah, it's totally not just problematic for progress as a whole, it kind of negates their position, their concerns as a whole. And I, voter ID is an intuitive thing. Everyone throws out these, you know, well, you need ID to do X, Y, and Z, you should need it to vote. Well, I understand that perspective, but I want, what I want advocates to understand is that one, we didn't need ID for a very long time and we got along quite fine without it. And then also that voter ID does not address the thing that you are claiming to want. So, what I try to do is say, what is the thing that, the, you know, rather than just say, hey, you're wrong about voter IDs, you're stupid, and then have that be the end of the conversation, or at least just have bickering back and forth. I'm like, I, you, what I usually say is, what is it that concerns you about this election? And how is voter ID addressing that for you? And that really gets the conversation going. And what I found, that's beautiful. It ends up evolving to the point where they say something like, well, you know, I'm really just dissatisfied with the whole system. I'm, I'm saying now we're talking. Now we're both on the same page. Yeah, I'm dissatisfied totally. with the system. You're dissatisfied with the system. What can we do to, to bridge that divide? Is it voter ID or is it maybe we need better, you know, systems of accountability and systems of counting and even electronic systems for integrity, all of that stuff? Um, then all of a sudden we're on the same page and that's where they're expending their energy now. And I, I feel very gratified when that happens. So that is a very practical point for a podcast like this, where we are trying to learn ourselves and help each other learn how to depolarize and how to build bridges. I love that practical piece of advice. If you meet someone who puts forward a political opinion that you find disagreeable or even reprehensible, start by saying, why do you think that policy is necessary? What is the problem that you think that policy will solve? And some people won't even answer that, but a lot of people will answer that. And then you can go, oh, okay, cool. Do we agree that that's a problem? Yes or no? 
okay, what do we know between the two of us about how that problem might be solved or what could we look up or, you know, whose story could we hear? That's amazing. But I want to go back to what you were saying about these Latino residents or like legal residents or whoever these disenfranchised voters are who would prefer Hillary to Trump for obvious reasons, but don't like Hillary and don't like Obama. Can you put on your citizen hat, your just Latino male citizen hat and give us that case? Cause I don't think that we hear that argument very often, especially those of us who lean left. Let's hear it. What's that argument? Yeah. You don't hear it at all unless you're not deeply entrenched, but unless you're, you know, you're ensconced in those, those movements in those communities. And it, it's so counterintuitive to me because I'm like, wow, you didn't know that to someone maybe who's a liberal. You didn't know that all these people are marching against Obama every time he comes to LA. How did you not know that? Because, you know, it doesn't get reported and all those reasons. Yeah, I'll freely admit complete ignorance about that. I mean, I, yeah. I know that his deportation numbers are high, but I also know that so much of the flack he's gotten from the right has been on executive orders that seemingly help out these children who were brought here largely from Latin America. So my impression was like maybe medium. Right. Like I would, if I had to guess somewhere in the middle or positive. So I'm not only surprised, but now I'm really interested. And that's the big takeaway is that I wish all 300 million people living in the U S could say, Hey, it's a complex job and people take and complex actions all the time. Some of which are contradictory, but also understandable in how they're contradictory. But with this specific example about being Latino and being in the United States and having an opinion about Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton, that identity in and of itself changes the priority, changes the assessment. So when someone says, what do you think about Barack Obama as just generic liberal? He's great. I wish we could have four more years of him. The economy's better, et cetera, et cetera, whatever it is, right? So that would be a general assessment. But when you ask a Latino person in particular, especially an undocumented person, you say, this guy is known for deporting more people than any other president and also instigating raids in a manner that has never really been done before. That doesn't seem consistent with what he's known for or how people assess him. Hmm. That bothers me. And that will be one of the first things they bring up. So. It's not that they dislike him or they wouldn't even vote for him given those choices. It's it's saying that this issue matters a lot to me. The fact that you don't know about it, that it's not on your radar, that it's not something that you're looking to correct as the president right away bothers me. That's what I want you to change. And I want it to bother you. I want it to bother generic white liberal you. And uh that's that's what really happens is it changes the priorities it changes the the tone of the conversation it's it's no longer just a kind of glowing assessment it's saying hey let's talk about his faults a little more openly and i think uh liberals tend to do that a little bit more but i hope it's something that that can be expanded to both groups to say hey you know what not only is this person imperfect but i'm going to tell you exactly why this president is imperfect where I disagree with them and where I think I should hold them accountable or we should all hold them accountable. Well, I've actually seen a lot of that from the right this election cycle, especially among communities of faith. I personally strongly disagree with the argument that Christians, you know, for instance, should vote Donald Trump because of the Supreme Court and other policies. But most of the people I've talked to with for whom I have respect as individuals say, look, we we have to vote for him because we care so strongly about Supreme Court justices. 
that we just have to take our chances, basically. And then they might do some minimizing of some issues that I think are bigger deals or whatever, but they they are at least acknowledging in the way that you're talking about, sort of like, he's not an ideal candidate. I'm not just swallowing the Kool-Aid whole. I'm just saying, I think I have an obligation to vote this way. And once they say that, that's when the conversation starts. And then we can go, great, okay, let's talk about if that's a good argument or not. Right. Um, and why do you want why do you want conservative Supreme Court justices? And and what's your level of understanding of how the Supreme Court works? And what's mine? And who could we ask that knows more than us? And that's when it gets good. Yeah, and that's brilliant because you know what immediately comes to my head. You know when I say um, I, I was saying a little earlier that I hope that changes. I I I was implying that I think that has changed a little. And the last question of the debate last night was, you know, what's one good thing you can say about the other candidate? And I, I know there are many good things I could say about Trump. I know that would surprise people, but, you know, and there are many good things I could say about Hillary. If I wouldn't have to narrow it down to one. But one thing that Trump has done is he's completely removed the veil of this notion that Republicans need to be 100% lockstep, loyal behind a specific candidate. And in fact, the, I would say, it's completely anecdotal. I, don't, I haven't seen any survey evidence on this, but from my perspective, I would say that it's just the opposite of this election. That you have seen so much in inter-party or in you know inter-liberal chastising of people who might defect more than any other Republican that you've seen in recent years, and it's kind of been an amazing trip. But for me, the reason why I bring that up and why I promote that view is that I have never been the one to buy into this notion that. Democrats and Republicans are, you know, one is sufficiently worse than the other. One has sufficient or inherent flaws that the other doesn't have. I think they are both very flawed. And I think that bridging the partisan divide is really just an understanding of saying, all right, let's recognize the flaws and let's try to correct them either internally, externally, whatever it is, to actually say that there's something we can do to improve. I think both parties have set this kind of set the table to say, no, you know, we're not going to admit to flaws. We're just going to kind of trudge on and hope our side keeps winning. And uh, that's a, it's a huge problem for, for polarization, for partisan politics or our political system in general. I should say. Well, that seems like as, a, as good a time as any to wrap up, we can criticize the left a little bit, which I, I like to end by doing that whenever <laughs> possible as someone who is kind of center left. And uh, so before we go though, how can people find you? How can they get involved if they want to? Well, I would say go to voteallies.org. You could sign up as an observer at the least. And reading this kind cool. of the opening statement lets you just see what people would be doing in the process, kind of just the guidelines for the project. But also definitely follow the Facebook page because if you're someone that's interested in voting rights from either perspective, the Vote Allies Facebook page gives very good, I think, up-to-date assessment of the landscape of voting rights. And this this spans the spectrum from like Native American voting rights who have their own struggles to territorial voting rights to voter ID and felony disenfranchisement and immigrant enfranchisement, all of that stuff. So I, if you have any interest in that, go to Vote Allies uh, through Facebook and, and follow the page. So I'd be happy to keep, you know, engaging with people that way. Thank you so much, Brett. You're very welcome, Dan. Thanks so much for, for doing this. Also, you can find me on Twitter at Dan K-O-C-H. 
And there will be show notes for this episode on our website, depolarizedpodcast.com. Thank you guys, and we'll see you for the next episode. Thank you.